coming through. Okay, thank you. Here we are. Yes, friendly, smiling little solar cells. The start to the second series of Research with Impact podcast from the University of Bath has brought me to the roof of the Chancellor's building there, lined with glittering solar panels facing towards the bright morning sun. I'm Roland Pease, and if the idea of this short series is to get an overview of the world-leading, world-changing research done at Bath, then this roof close to the heart of the university campus is a very good starting point. In future episodes, I'll be learning about AI, not just the science, but also the practice, what's needed to make sure it works for us, not against us, and cutting-edge research on pain, how to manage it, a sign to help that too often gets pushed to the sidelines. But this episode is about solar power, steadily making inroads into our energy market, but with so much more potential, which researchers at Bath University are keen to unleash. So you can see that the solar cells are all at a slight angle, and that's to optimise the amount of power they can derive from the sun. And they're all silicon cells. They're all silicon cells. Um, there's, have you counted them? I'm not going to. <laughs> it's, it's quite I'm a, I'm a theorist. Theorists can't count. So yeah. This this is powering part of Bath University itself. Yes. So this is science in practice and engineering in practice. Oh, absolutely. And there's a meter you can look at at the bottom, and it turns over very fast. In fact, I have various friends and relatives who have these meters, and they're evangelical about solar because they can see it generating power in front of their eyes. <laughs> you can see it at work as well as lighting the lights. Yeah. And basically sunlight hits these glass covered panels and electricity comes out. Yes, what happens in between is the sunlight gets absorbed by the silicon and it knocks electrons off their perch as it were and the electrons knocked off their perch move through the cell and flow around the circuit to generate a current. My guide amidst the arrays of silicon panels is Alison Walker, Professor of Theoretical Physics here, keeping things helpfully simple at this point. Also a keen advocate of green solar power, Chair of the Solar Commission, which reported in 2019 on the industrial potential of solar power, and computational partner of chemist Petra Cameron, whose solar materials labs I'll be visiting a little later. But first, a project that weds ancient and modern that Alison has been involved in. These solar cells are bathed in sunlight at the moment. They're yeah. presumably churning stuff out. Now, where's Bath itself? We're on the hill above yes. the famous city of Bath. Yeah. Two really famous buildings there. There's yeah. the, the baths, the Roman baths. There's the abbey yes. that's in central Bath. I yeah. came past that on the bus coming up. Yes. Fantastic roof with all kinds of bits sticking up all over the place. But one of the things you've been doing mm. is to see whether they can convert their roof. Yes. A bit like this one, exactly. into solar power. Exactly. I mean, first of all, there are companies galore across the country who could be offering them advice. Why do they come to you? Well, because they just wanted it as a research project. They wanted to put their toes in the water. And they came to me because I'd just been funded to train 70 students across seven universities, something called a Centre for Doctoral Training. And the students are adept at manipulating the, the models that could predict 
how much output you could get from solar cells under more or less any conditions. So I got the students to go up to the roof of Bath Abbey. They got the measurements of the roof and the inclination and so on. And they used this model to predict that Bath Abbey could make a profit out of putting solar on the roof. And what are the questions when you say, OK, this roof, I, I, I've not yes. been up there. What are the questions when you go up onto a roof of a famous old building yes. about yeah. whether you can actually install solar panels there safely, whether they'll work and, as you say, whether yeah. they'll actually pay for themselves? Yeah. Well, one question is immediately answered, and it's a very interesting one. It's the fact that churches are aligned east-west, so they've always got a south-facing roof. And so they're bound to be of use. Another point that helps it in favour of solar is the fact that churches and abbeys and so on are used during the day. That's when solar power is at its maximum. They're not using lights at the night so yes, much. Yes, exactly. So it's a much more efficient way of generating power. So it can genuinely save them a lot of money compared with importing electricity from the grid. But what about the roof? Because these panels are inclined very carefully, I guess, partly yes. for the rain to run off, but it's also, I think, so they're facing the sun in the perfect way. Yes. Whereas the abbots who built the abbey presumably had, were thinking about something else when they built <laughs> yes, their Yes, so it's strange. Just they didn't know much about solar power. Although the Romans... <laughs> Do and so on. But anyway, um, the point is that the roofs are inclined on the abbey. So they're close enough to the ideal angle of inclination that actually it's still very effective. Oh, th these, these architects did a good job for you. <laughs> <laughs> and what about the strength? I mean, what, yes. you know, I, I imagine they're a bit worried about these things being too heavy, for yes. example. Well, they're not, because that was the nice thing. They were, Bath Abbey were very keen for us to go on tour. So we went up to the roof and there was, you know, 15 students, I mean, wandering all over the roof. And it, it, it's very solid. And so they can easily bear silicon cells. And the reason we know that is because Gloucester Abbey put solar cells on their roof and they're very successfully. So we had a precedent. Mm. I mean, this programme here is about research with impact. Yes. So the question is, how does this illustrate the work that you're doing that will promote solar energy? Right. Well, it illustrates it showing that we can understand how the solar cells work in a realistic situation. But that says, well, if we were to improve the solar cells by a certain amount, how much difference would that make to the economics? And that's where this kind of work is very useful. That comes to the other question I was yeah. going to have is, if we have these solar cells mm. doing the job at the moment, yes. and they are being rolled out across the country, yes. where's the room for improvement? Right. Well, the room for improvement is that they're very heavy, and they also, you need a lot of cells because silicon is a poor absorber of light. So the room for improvement is to find something that's a better absorber of light that can reduce the number of cells that you need to put on your roof or the amount of area taken up by solar farms. So changing the materials that are being used. Yes. So you've got, is it the Red Queen effect? Because presumably these silicon solar cells are improving all the time. Yes. But as academics, you're chasing down new materials and you have to persuade industry that yeah. don't forget that we can actually do this better yeah to put in some numbers silicon cells on their own about 26 percent depending whether polycrystalline or single crystalline but if you put these new materials on you can get the efficiencies up to 35 percent so it's a significant improvement and so that's one of the projects it is actually yeah. the materials that really interest you as a physicist yes, is yes, it yes yeah indeed yes well materials and how they're incorporated into devices in one of these i'll be seeing chemist petra cameron will yes. be showing me some of these materials called perovskites. Yes. You're working on those as well. Yes. And what is a perovskite? 
Well, a perovskite is refers to a structure. Barium titanate, calcium titanate. Oh, hang on, say that again. Barium titanate, calcium titanate. Some very common materials have the perovskite structure. Yeah. But it was discovered that these materials with the proskite structure, a particular set of material combinations, could absorb light very efficiently. So this is a lead that's been worked on for how long now? Well, so this is the point. It's one of the most dramatic increases in efficiency in history, as it were. They were first discovered in 2009, and they started with a few percent, a good starting point. And then within a decade, it was competing with silicon. I mean, it was that fast, the change. Uh, and just a reminder that silicon's yes. been around for decades and decades. Yes. And so, as a physicist, you're sitting there thinking, hang on, we can actually change the world with this. Yes, it's still at the point where it's got to break through. Now, the nice thing about perovskites is that you don't need a lot of energy to make them. You can make them and you can just paint them on. It's what's called wet chemistry, which you'll see. But the problem with perovskites, the reason that you're not, you won't find them in your local B&Q is because they degrade really fast. They're very sensitive to things like moisture. So that my charger or my solar panel would be yeah. fine on day one, but yes. by what, well, by year, year two? or year, year two. So it's changing all the time. And this is why I'm interested, because I can model the effects due to degradation. Can you also point out the solutions? Well, that's where the digital twin idea, and this is a new idea, it's, it's you know, yeah. can't, literally. <laughs> I mean, and you say digital twin, so what, the idea is your computer models are the twin to Petra's chemistry? Precisely. And I'm convinced it, it will make a big difference, because we can use real experimental data to identify specifically what the causes of degradation are in a more detailed study than what currently being undertaken, which are just people having to make guesses as to which of the parameters really responsible for the degradation. So Petra sits in her lab, I mean she'll tell me about this in a moment, but uh, she sits in her lab, she's uh, making these materials, changing the chemical composition, taking measurements, and then she says, here you are, Alison, what do you make of that? Yes, so she gives me some data, and, and so I feed that data into our model, and our model then becomes a digital twid, because it then tries to reproduce Petra's data by varying the parameters until it does produce Petra's data. I mean, I, I really love the way that science can work and do these things. But can we go from the small scale, from yes. the, these kinds of absolute details that you're dealing with, to yeah. the big scale? You were involved in a national commission yes. on the future. So, the commission, yes. so this is the other end of, the, of your work. Yes. This was 2019. And at that point, there was a lot of political scepticism about the value of solar. I can't remember the number of times people say, oh, it's not a sunny country. And, and what, what does the UK PLC get out of it? And what we wanted to show was that there's a lot of small companies, there's a lot of effort in solar, but it's mainly with the relatively small companies doing this effort. So we wanted to point out that in aggregate, there is a huge economic gain to the UK to invest in. I mean, for a start, the, these new proskite cells were pioneered in this country by Henry Snaith and his colleagues. And partly because the UK has the materials expertise. It has a massively strong materials expertise. And so it just seemed that because people didn't know about it, they thought it wasn't there. And that's what we wanted to bring to their attention. And what about the contribution? Did you also look at the contribution solar power could make to reducing our carbon footprint? Well, yes. I mean, you can see that there's often days when solar, you know, dominates. The whole country can be powered on solar. You're right. There's scepticism about this, partly yeah. because of where we are, partly because the sun isn't always shining and there's nights and da-da-da. I yeah. mean, people come up. You think that we can wean ourselves 
of a huge amount of oil and fossil fuels. Absolutely, yeah. So solar, I think it was 60% solar and 40% wind is, are the renewables. I mean, is that solar does contributes that significant fraction to the renewables. And there's a lot of evidence to, to, to show that combined with reducing power needs through things like insulation, that you can reduce the need significantly. I mean, I would say to zero because I'm, I'm an evangelist, but I, I think it, it significantly would reduce our need for oil and gas to power the homes. We have to be careful here. Solar doesn't heat a house. It will produce the power for lighting and it can charge batteries and things like that. You do need other sources such as heat pumps for heating the house. And so you want to roll more and more solar out. I mean, yes. here we are, as we say, surrounded by these panels yeah. on the Chancellor's building. Yeah. How much more can we scale it up in the UK and how much more do we need to scale it up? Uh, well, the answer is a lot. Because if you go to the continent, you see solar panels everywhere. Here, you, you do see them, but not nearly so much. So I think we need to expand the effort in installing solar. I mean, there's a, a lot of roofs which aren't clad in solar. And a lot of these roofs will have south-facing areas which you can put the solar on. So by having, again, increasing efficiency of the solar cells, you need to have less solar panels on the roof, which makes it more attractive. And so it's interesting. It's that, that whole mixture of economics, but also you brought us back to that detailed physics, the science yes, yes. of trying to make them better. They can be better. Yes. They will be better. Yes. They will? Oh, oh they will. No, absolutely. I mean... Well, you can just see it from the way the research is heading. Bear in mind, I stress that perovskites have only been around since 2009. And, you know, most technologies take many decades to become commercialised. So, I, you know, give it another few years and they will be there. And, and that's an enormous drive to get solar on roofs everywhere in the world. And what's it like to be in the middle of all of this oh, at, it, at the University of Bath? It, it, it's fantastic because it shows that material science is, is valuable. What we're doing is not only really, really interesting, but it also helps with the climate change. Professor of Theoretical Physics, Alison Walker. But at the University of Bath, it's not just theory, there's practice as well. Come into my lab. From the sunlit rooftop of the Chancellor's building, are descended into one of the windowless labs of the chemistry department where they're cooking up solar materials for a brighter future. So I'm Petra Cameron, I'm a professor of energy materials here at the University of Bath. As Alison Walker told me, Petra's chemistry is focused on developing an extremely promising yet tantalisingly frustrating class of materials called perovskites, which could replace or supplement silicon as the active component of future solar panels, if only the perfect formula could be found. And in her bustling, glassware-cluttered lab, it seemed her team does a lot of perovskite cookery with a lot of ingredients. We have a nice big box here with all the precursors in. Yeah? So look, there's... Oh, can I open it? No, there's the question. Um, these are all the perovskite precursors that we buy. So what's that one? Oh, that's for the oxide layer, that's nickel acetate. That's a formamidinium salt that we use to make formamidinium lead bromide perovskites. So there's lots of different I salt. I love a chemistry storehouse. <laughs> so these are all our perovskite precursors. We take them out of the containers, we dissolve them up in solution, and then we do something called spin coating which is as crazy as it sounds. So you take your little substrate that you want to make your solar cell on, 
you put it onto a little chuck and you spin it 2,000 times or 3,000 times <laughs> per minute. Like that. Very fast. <laughs> and then you just take a very tiny amount of the solution you want to coat and you put a little solution on before you start spinning. You press go, it spins incredibly fast. Most of the solution gets thrown off <laughs> and a very say, small amount back. of it yes stand back it, it 50 microliters is what we use so it's a very tiny amount of solution and then most of the solution is spun off but a small amount of it stays and that's what makes the film that's the bit that will that's the bit that absorbs the light and turns that light into electricity your whiz is not going at the moment but you've got some slides you prepared earlier have you yes we've got some solar cells down here um, right. So this is a drawer. This is from someone who's just graduated, actually, and she made, I think, about five or six hundred solar cells as part of her PhD. So each one of these tiny little cells, they're about two centimetres by one centimetre, and each one of those is a separate solar cell. So I can see this dark, well, slightly purplish tinge. I don't know, is that just that my imagination? That is the, actually carbon. So... In these cells, these are wideband gap cells. So we use these cells for making high voltage devices. So these cells have this kind of nice yellow color here. Yeah. Now that is the perovskite, that yellow color. The ye so this, right. is, this is a yellow perovskite solar cell. So when you do that spinning, yes, that's, that's what we get, is that very I mean, thin layer of I'm gonna put my film. hand behind it, and yes. I think it looks translucent, it's actually not Yes, quite. it's yellowy orange, mm. you can kind of see it there. So How thick is that? Oh, that is about three to 400 nanometers. Is very thin. I think in technical terms, that's nothing. You know. It's, yeah, it's basically you can just see it on there. But that's the point of these and materials. The point it? of these materials is they're very absorbing. So even with three to four hundred nanometers, we can absorb eighty percent of the sun's light at specific wavelengths. So they're very, very good at absorbing light. And the black layer you can see there is actually the contact. That's carbon. That picks up yeah, the charge. Picks the up the charge and helps us get the current out of the cell. So you contact there and there, and that is your little cell then. So the reason we have so many of these is because what we do in this lab is we test things. So we're interested in new materials, we're interested in new ways of making the cells, we're interested in new contact materials, so how you get the charge out of the perovskite. So we have drawers and drawers in here, which are just all full of <laughs> cells. Many, many, many cells. Uh, There's more drawers around the other side. And you know which each of them is. I guess the labelling well, yeah, becomes important. They're all labelled. They're all numbered individually. Um, and if you looked in the student thesis, she has every number, every cell. She knows exactly what's in each one of them. And, uh, yeah, we characterise them all individually. We try and figure out what's going right, what's going wrong. We try and improve it. And what became clear quite quickly is improving the perovskites is not just about capturing more sunlight, but capturing it in different ways for different purposes. So as well as trying different recipes, Petra's team wires those little slivers into circuits to measure how well they're performing. You put your crocodile clips on that. Yeah. It really is crocodile clips. It is, is it? really crocodile clips. You, cl yeah. you click them on. <laughs> you you connect it to a, a voltmeter or something like that, um, or an ammeter. Or we use a little potentiometer actually. So we're measuring the current and the voltage from the device. Depending on also, I guess, the amount of light that you're shining yes. on it. Yes. So we use one sun, which is an actual unit. So we have yeah. a solar simulator down in the other lab, which is a big box with a, a very bright lamp in it with various filters to so give us the spectrum of a sun. 
and it's the sun when you're standing on the equator at midday and the sun is at its zenith or something like this and basically we put ourselves under one sun and we measure how much current we can get out under exactly one sun. And so, you know, the figure I'm often being told is that with a silicon solar panel, yes. you get, I don't know, 20%, maybe a bit more than 20%. Yes. What's, what's your best? Our best, so these cells are lower than that because they're yellow. So a silicon, you, you would have seen some silicon solar panels on the roof. Yeah, we were so you were on there, the yeah. roof a minute ago. Those are kind of a very shiny, dark, almost black color, absorbing across the whole solar spectrum so you get a higher efficiency. Now these cells are yellow, so they're not going to be absorbing across the whole spectrum. There's a but. But we get a higher voltage. Uh-huh. So these cells will give you, for a single cell, we can get up to 1.5 volts out of a single solar cell. But the point is that one of the abilities you have with these materials, because they're chemically more complicated, I guess, they, than silicon, you, you have a lot more control over what you can the get chemical from it. composition. We have very fine control. And one of the beautiful things about perovskite solar cells, you can go all the way from yellow materials to orange materials to red materials to brown materials <laughs> that all absorb different parts of the solar spectrum. And you can then basically tailor the properties of your cell to what application you want. So the reason we've been working here with yellow cells is because we want to use these cells to drive the splitting of water into hydrogen and oxygen to make solar fuels effectively. So hydrogen and oxygen for those kind of applications. To do that, you need minimum 1.23 volts volts driving force. And with these, we can get up to 1.5 in a single junction. It's not quite enough because I don't know how technical you want me to get, but you need to put in a bit of extra energy to drive the reaction but we don't have to put in much extra. We're pretty close to where we need to be. So this is really interesting. This is not just about solar power. It's actually going into yes, chemistry. chemistry, yes. And yes. if the perovskite program works, it opens the door to a lot well, more than just powering our potentially, lives. Potentially, yes. Potentially, we can start looking at things like solar fuels. And, and when we started this, we, you know, there was only a few groups doing this to do water splitting. And we do the completely mad experiment. We take a solar cell, which is highly soluble in water, and we put it underwater (laughs) to drive water splitting. And we've spent a lot of time working out how to stabilize the cells to do that. And actually, that's been really interesting because by working out how to stabilize the cell, we've learned a huge amount about how the cell works and actually how to stabilize it just in a normal situation. Because if you can stabilize it underwater, you can stabilize it on a roof, right? Which is a much less harsh environment, really. The more we talked, the more I understood why perovskites are alluring yet difficult. And the more I wanted to hear. I mean, you're such an enthusiast. I enjoy it. I like what I do. <laughs> and is it? I mean, I look at these drawersfuls of these tiny, uh, these slivers. You know, the the contrast between you know yes. these big meter-sized panels I saw yeah. on the roof, and these are not even a centimeter. So these little carbon cells. One of the reasons we're looking at the carbon cells is because they are inherently scalable, basically. Mm. And we keep them small because it's cheaper to make 600 of them. You can make 600 tiny cells. You can't make 600 panels and get it wrong. You can get it deeply wrong with a little two by one centimeter cell and throw it away. It's not a problem. Some of the people working on scale up, they make huge panel cells and they're doing very similar things to what we are doing, but they are basing their work on exactly this work that all of us are doing with the tiny little solar cells. But what I was so, thinking in part was, you know, maybe you don't do so much of this yourself, but your students presumably mm-hmm. are coming in and they're saying, 
oh, not another 300 <laughs> solar cells to measure today. Something must keep them going. Yeah, I think it's that excitement of what's coming next because there's always something to discover. There's something new and you can't predict where the discoveries are going to come. You know, you have a great idea. You think, right, we're going to do this and this is going to work. And the thing which you think initially is going to work never works. At least never works the way you think it's going to. And it's often that mistake experiment where, you know, one of the graduate students leaves something on over the weekend and goes away and forgets about it. Or puts something in that they just thought, oh, we'll just give this a try and see what happens. And that turns out to be the really exciting thing. And that then turns out to be three years of work trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> what is it doing? Why is it making something better? Why is it changing the properties? And that's what I enjoy because it's that discovery process. And as I scanned the lab benches, I found discovery included branching out from making electricity to horticulture. I couldn't help noting over here yes. in that flask. There's I, a brown I, goop which is bubbling away. It's <laughs> yeah. bubbling away. Is that one of your perovskites you're cooking up? No, that's not actually a perovskite. Um, this is a molecule that we're making and it's not for solar cells. So these are molecules that also interact with light. So they take light and they fluoresce, which means they absorb light and then they emit light at a different wavelength. So these ones, if you put them under blue light, they look red. Basically, they fluoresce red, so you get a red-coloured film. And we started making these for solar cells, working on this with actually with a startup company called Lambda Energy. But we kind of came to the conclusion that actually this technology will be fantastic for greenhouses, which sounds what? crazy, sounds completely crazy. So we've gone all the way from solar cells to greenhouses. But we're going to take these molecules, we put them into a basically a paint. So you know how they whitewash greenhouses yeah. in summer? Um, so shade them, then stop they the shade them, yeah. exactly. So we are taking those molecules, testing them, and then Lambda put those molecules into whitewash films or varnish films that go on greenhouses. Those films take a certain fraction of the light that plants don't normally use, kind of towards the blue end of the spectrum, and they change that light to red light. Now, chlorophyll is the main absorbing molecule in, yeah, uh, I remember in, uh, my biology. in biology and leaves. They're green. Anything green is absorbing red light very strongly. So that's what's driving so, the photosynthesis yes, that makes the plant matter. driving the photosynthesis matter. that makes the plant grow, that makes your vegetables and your fruit get bigger and bigger and bigger. So we are taking these films, coating them on greenhouses. We're taking blue light, we're making it into red light, and we're getting higher plant yields. So we've done some tests on strawberries. That's the first <laughs> test we've done. And that's quite a nice one because we, we had six greenhouses. Solar-powered strawberries? Yes, yes. Well, they are solar-powered. All plants are solar-powered. <laughs> but, you know, improving the yields. And what, what they did, that was a nice one. So they grew all these strawberries in the greenhouses. They were, you know, standard greenhouses and our coated greenhouses. And they can measure the weight of fruit. So it's quite a nice scientific way of doing it. And you can see an increased weight being produced when you have these coatings because they're increasing fractions of certain light in the greenhouse. And that's really fun. And I love doing that project because it's the same technology and related technologies that we're using for our solar cells, but we're applying it to a very different application, but one that's really important. Do they taste good as one of Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They taste fantastic. They taste, you know, there's actually research that's been done on this. And by controlling the spectrum of light, you change the flavor of the fruit. And you can actually make them taste better if you can get it right. 
but but what what I think is even more important than the flavour of I mean obviously the flavour is important but the energy demand of greenhouses is phenomenal because we're not using lighting we're not using heating okay we're talking about just a passive film you just paint it on and you're increasing the crop yields in a very low tech way it's just a clever paint absolutely I mean this it's it's interesting the theme of these podcasts is research with impact it sounds to me like you're not quite there but you're confident that you will you, I, you think you think I this think will change will. the world well i hope so you've got to hope haven't you because you know there's so much bad news and there's so much in the world that you think if only we could change this and if only the politicians would do this and all we can do is try and come up with the best technologies that will help us solve some of our problems cheap easily so that there's no question of it not happening you know it just becomes a no-brainer and I think the more technologies that we have which can produce energy sustainably the better and perovskite solar cells I think there's such a critical mass of researchers working in this now and there's such a drive forward and there's such flexible interesting materials I think it will happen I think they will get there and there will be some really exciting products you know energy products coming out of it but I'm a fundamental scientist I get excited by just the electrons moving around but it would be lovely to see these things you know out in a genuine field so yes I think so I think so <laughs> refreshingly hesitant to trumpet the impact of her research Petra Cameron a star in the field of finding the solar materials of the future I'm keen to try some of those solar boosted strawberries when the next crop ripens but that's it for this episode of Research with Impact from the University of Bath. If you want to find out more about the research projects I've seen in this episode, you can visit go.bath.ac.uk slash research hyphen with hyphen impact or follow at Uni of Bath. And if you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please like and subscribe. Next episode, the promise of AI and how to make it work for all of us. There may be things in the world that are understandable, but not by us. It is only our own superstition that we can't be bested. Maybe we can, and maybe the machines can. The amount of data we feed into this machine is enormous. The amount of computing power we use is enormous. What comes out is a model with limitations and it's easy to trick. But on the other hand, sometimes some things it says are quite clever. Now we're gonna to have to sit down and discuss what it means to understand.